morning. Something that I was planning didn't work this morning, so now I had to do some adjusting, and thankfully Brian's allowing me to use his guitar a little bit later. Good to be back. It's good to be with you. I feel like I almost have to try to remember how to do this. It's been almost a month since I've preached here at the river, and um, like I said, we spent some time while on vacation in uh, Michigan and other places uh, going to other churches, and um, I'm just, I'm struck by uh, one thing in particular. We're we're a smaller group this morning, certainly, Um, but uh, standing there at the back, I can hear you sing, and that's striking because there's a lot of churches where you can't hear people sing. And uh, it's good to be with people who want to sing praises to our God. Amen? Amen. Good stuff. Uh, This morning, we are beginning a series of sermons on forgiveness. And this actually comes out of a number of different conversations that I've had, uh, that I had with people before vacation, just about how much forgiveness um, in a couple particular instances um, really transformed things for people uh, and stuff that was uh, seems so simple, stuff that seems so basic uh, in terms of understanding forgiveness wasn't. And so these folks who uh, were the particular topic of the conversations um, had never heard some of the things or at least internalized them in such a way that um, they could experience the freedom of forgiveness, both forgiveness for themselves and receiving forgiveness from others and from God, um, but also how to forgive others. And so we're going to spend about six weeks or so talking at length about forgiveness, and um, we're going to start this morning by uh, beginning a three-week study of the prodigal son. That's from Luke 15. encourage you to turn in your Bibles there, Luke 15, verse 11, um, and then we'll branch out from there. And another thing that I want you to be aware of, I'm, I'm doing something in September that I never said I would do. Um, I'm, I, well, I, I've always said that I wanted to grow as a preacher and do different things, but I'm starting a study with you in uh, September doing a, a, a method of preaching that, that, frankly, it's not my favorite method. There's a number of reasons why, um, but I think that it would be good for me to learn more about this method and this idea of, of preaching more. So beginning in September, we are going to do what is called an expository series on the book of Romans. Romans is my favorite book. Uh, just so you all know, if you ever want me to get uh, get me a Christmas or a birthday gift, just get me the book of Romans because I love it. Um, but uh, we're going to do an expository series, which means that we're going to walk through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we're going to do a series of studies on the particulars of Romans. I'm still working on a, on a title, the one I have, I'm not a super fan of yet. So um, we're going we're gonna to work that out. But I um, want to encourage you, uh, even now, uh, maybe even spend some time in the book of Romans. It's so rich with grace. It's so rich with some of the fundamentals of faith. But you can look forward to that coming September. And uh, Lord willing, we'll do the entire book of Romans. So I don't know. By the time we're done, Jesus may have come again. It will take a while. That's okay, though. Um, so this morning, Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son or even called the parable of the prodigal father, depending on um, who you listen to and your uh, particular version of Scripture as we get, to ready, get ready to spend time in God's Word. Let's pray for His blessing on our time. Holy Spirit, 
come. Actually, Lord, you're already here. And we acknowledge that truth. But we ask that in your coming to be with us, that you make your presence powerfully known, that you transform, Lord, our hearts and our minds according to your will. Lord, speak to us in our need for forgiveness. Speak to us in our need to understand more about our own sin and what forgiveness means to us. We pray, Father, that those who are here who are in that place of having to process forgiveness of themselves, forgiveness of others, receiving forgiveness from you, that, Lord, you touch them. And frankly, Lord, we know that's all of us. Touch us all with your spirit through the work of Christ that we might be changed. Go from this place, different people, living in your grace, living in the joy you've given to us, living in the freedom that we have in Christ and showing others what that freedom means. means. We pray these things all in the name of Jesus. God's people said together, amen. Luke 15, verse 11. And Jesus continued. This is a series of three teachings that he did, very similar teachings about um, being lost, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and now the lost son. He continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed hogs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 
Your father has king has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you gave me you, you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your pro- property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because the, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've told you uh, over the years about um, different jobs that I've had at different points in my life. I don't know if I've ever told you that when I was in high school, I actually had a part-time job working at a local uh, mechanic shop, uh, an auto garage. And uh, I would work there some couple of nights a week and then on Saturdays. And um, as if you know me, you know on anything except probably pastor-like things, I'm really unskilled labor, which I was when it came to being in an auto shop. I was the unskilled labor, which meant I had a lot to learn and really didn't know anything. I could do simple basic things like change oil. I could do things like Um, take tires off and put new tires on. I could do some simple things, and especially in the 80s and 90s when cars were like they were then, these things were simpler than they are now because now if you open your hood most of the time, you need a doctoral degree in order to make things work anymore. Um, In the 80s and 90s, you could do things like fairly easily take off an alternator or a starter or change a battery without too much work. And so I could do some of those things, but some of the other uh, more complicated things, I certainly wasn't a trained mechanic and had no idea how to do. Um, But I was always really trying to learn. The idea was I was going to become one of those car guys, and I was going to be able to fix up a car and have a car in my garage that I could fix up and and make the way that I wanted it to. But um, if you've seen my car, you know I never got to that point. Um. It was one day that uh, a car needed uh, a number of different things fixed, and it was going to be there at least for a couple days, so they weren't in a rush on the car. But the owner of the shop came up to me and said, a couple of the things have to get taken care of, but one thing I would like you to work on is changing the timing belt. And changing the timing belt on a car is, at least at this point, it seemed like it was generally a fairly uh, easy task. If those of you who don't know, a timing belt is a belt that goes through your car, comes off of your car and just engine, and can power a number of different other things. Things like your alternator, power steering, your air conditioning compressor, can all be attached to this belt, and by this belt spinning off the power of the engine, it will power these other parts to your car. And so it's a pretty important thing. If it not, doesn't work, your car won't run very well at all, and very few things will work. So it was an important job, and I needed to figure out how to do it. And on this particular car, I knew that there was a tensioner that if you release the tension on the timing belt, it would be easier to get off. So I went, and I got a pry bar, and I released the tension and unhooked it, and then the the belt was loose. 
But the belt, as you know, is one piece. It goes, it's a, it's a circle, more or less, and it's one piece, and um, I couldn't get it out. And there's some of you who are thinking to yourself, well, get some shears, cut it off, and then you can get it out. But the problem is, if I couldn't get it out, what was the other side of that? I couldn't get the new one in. So I'm trying to figure out how to get this thing out, and there's three things that are stopping because they go from one side to the other, and they stop me from pulling the timing belt out. So I get two of the things loosened up, and I move the belt around, and I get it out easily off of those two things, but there's one bar going across that I can't figure out how to get the belt off and over this one bar. And literally for 45 minutes, and if you've ever worked in a car, you know how this works, parts are beginning to pile up around me, which is a scary prospect if you're a person like me and you don't really know what you're doing. I got bolts off of this. I got this control module. I got this thing moved and shifted, and I still can't get this belt out, and it's driving me nuts. And of course, when you're working on that, what happens when you get frustrated with your tools? little sounds or words that a high school boy would use, but a pastor should not, so I won't share them with you. And finally, the owner of the shop comes over to me, and he goes, this should have taken you like 15 minutes. What's going on? I said, well, I can't get the, the belt out. This bar, it just, I can't get it out. And he looks at me. He looks down at the car, reaches over, takes a ratchet, pops it on a bolt that I didn't see, unloosens it, moves the bar, pulls the timing belt out. Literally in 30 seconds, the old belt is out, and another minute and a half later, the new belt is on. And then he says, okay, now put all your parts back on. (laughs) Oh, goody, that's going to go well. And then he looked me in the eye and he said something that I won't forget. He said, I appreciate that you're trying really hard. But the best thing that you can do to get better at working on cars is sometimes ask for help. Simple lesson. Ask for help when you don't know what to do. In our teaching this morning, we have a young man who's in that place where he doesn't know what to do because things have gone off the rails. Now, let's understand a little bit of a a cultural perspective on the story of the prodigal son. We know from the teaching that the man had how many sons? He had two. Which means that when he divided up the estate, he was dividing it really in half. And if we understand this correctly, we understand that this was not just sort of a share. This was a half of everything that the man owned. And he had servants, and he obviously had a fattened calf, and he had work out in the fields and different stuff. So it's fairly safe to believe that this man was a a man of means. 
But if you think about the amount that you might have in your estate, for some of us, you might be like me. I mean, my kids will be lucky to get a bag of Doritos and a 2003 Mitsubishi Galant out of it. I mean, that's how it's going to work, right? But for some of us, that, that estate is going to be more significant. And if you think about your estate, I want you to think about how hard it would be to get to the point to be able to equitably divide it in half. I mean, we're talking about a lot of work, selling of goods. There would have to be some accounting of a lot of things. Different things would have to be figured out in order to be able to give the prodigal son his equal share. And that's why we hear in the teaching that some time later, it took time for the father to do this. Now, if we also understand the culture of the time, and it's a culture very similar to today, you would only do this sort of division and accounting and giving of an estate when? When you were either dead or ready to be dead. And we actually see that in the Old Testament in a series of, of different people's lives. We see people bringing their children to them and blessing them and telling them what their thing was going to be, what their share was going to be. We hear about birthrights being stolen because birthright was one of those shares. So this is something that did happen, and we see it happening in Scripture. But in this, we see it happening wrongly. Because the prodigal is in essence saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, then I would be able to easily get my share of the estate. But since that's not going to happen anytime soon, I just want it now. Pretty powerful statement to say to your father, I wish you were dead. So that's the perspective that we come into the story. And we see what the prodigal begins to do with his wealth. He goes into a far-off country. We don't know where that is, depending on how you understand the culture of, of Judaism at the time. And we have to believe that he's teaching to Jews. Jesus is teaching to Jews. And we don't understand exactly where he is, but it's probably in Galilee. If that's happening, a far-off country, literally in that context, could be 20 to 30 miles away. Because it wasn't just a shift of geography in terms of distance. Because 20 or 30 miles might take a good day, day and a half to get there. But even culturally. And not far away from Galilee was a place called the Decapolis. And the Decapolis is a distinctly Greek place. Jews didn't go there because it was Greek. If you would go there, you, would, you were bound to be exposed to something that would make you unclean. So he might have gone just as far away as maybe 30 miles to the Decapolis, to his far-off country. But the shift was more in terms of what the journey meant. And the journey meant that he was no longer under the thumb of his father and what the estate and what the business looked like. Now he could do what it is that he wanted. He wanted independence. And he desired to live life the way that he wanted to. And the problem with all that is that there was consequence. For everything you and I do, we know there are consequences. If we live rightly, if we live frugally, if we live within a budget, we know there's a consequence to that, generally a positive one. 
We also know that in this particular instance, his independence led him to behavior that was unlike all of those things, and he squandered his wealth on wild living. And there was consequence to that. First of all, he loses all the money. It's all gone. And that's certainly what sends him to the pig pen. But there's more to him than that, because he didn't just go into that pig pen poor, he also went into that pig pen probably guilty. He probably went in there with some self-hatred. He probably went in there even maybe an addict. Why? Because if you're going to participate in wild living, there's consequence, right? Wild living, wild, or wine, women, and song. Drink enough, become an alcoholic. That's a consequence. Spend enough time with women at parties and do some things that are a natural consequence of drinking too much together, you're going to have consequence, guilt, self-hatred, all those other sorts of things. So this young man was living in the pig pen, not really simply poor, but poor in spirit, broken, really, consumed by the monster of his sin, so much so that it put him into the pig do, put him into the worst of all places, because remember, he's a Jew. How did Jews see pigs? Unclean. He is in a place that is completely opposite of where it is that he really thought he wanted to be or should have been. She sits at her table, drinks her coffee, her eyes are bloodshot, she has a headache the size of Texas. She had said that it would never happen again, but it had. Yesterday had been a difficult day. She had spent the day at work frustrated by the accounts that she had, which were not turning out the way that she hoped they would. Her supervisor was coming to her office, in essence, pleading for better performance with her work. Her co-workers were frustrated with her because organizationally and with communication, she was a hindrance rather than a help to the business. So she couldn't wait for 5 o'clock to finally come around. And when 5 o'clock comes and she's walking out to the parking lot to her car, she's so very glad to look at her phone, see the text message from her friend. What do you say? Meet at Pedro's, 8.30 tonight. We'll spend some time with friends and have some drinks. Absolutely. Sounds wonderful. So she goes home waiting for 8.30 to come, makes herself some dinner, and as she customarily does, pours herself a glass of wine, and then when she thinks she's done, pours just a little bit more. It's been a tough day, and I'll only have one. And as she's making her dinner, that wine help her, helps her unwind just a little bit so that by the time she's getting ready to leave, it's been replaced instead of one with two glasses of wine because the first one tasted so good. She meets her friend at Pedro's and they sit at the table and instantly order their customary Cosmopolitans because that was their drink of choice at Pedro's. And she says again to herself, I'll only have this one and then spend time with my friends laughing 
And that first one tastes oh so good. And she can feel herself relax even more. And the conversation flows freely and with laughter. And she's feeling the way completely different than she did during the day at work. And so it's easy for them to quickly order another round. And then it's time to dance. They get on the dance floor. It's a wonderful time. They laugh. They have fun. The music is great. And by the time they get back to their table, what has someone done? Ordered another round. And after that one's gone, she goes to the bathroom. And in the meantime, someone's ordered her another round. And by the end of the night, she can't remember how many times her glass has been refilled. But she vaguely recollects the fight with her friend in the parking lot. She vaguely recollects getting into her car, making her way home. And she has no memory of throwing herself onto her bed, passing out in essence in the clothes she wore the night before. And yet she still has to go to work today. It wouldn't be such a big deal if this was the first time. There were many times, many, many times of saying, I'm never going to do this again. And after she gets herself ready and climbs into the car to drive, she knows she's not alone because the monster of guilt drives in the car with her. And unfortunately that day, there's traffic. He walks into the bathroom goes to the sink and gets some cold water and splashes it on his face and runs his fingers through his hair. Today's probably not going to be a good day because they're starting to figure it out. He'd only done it a few times that he could remember. It's easy to juggle the books, change the invoices, alter some columns, and suddenly there's money that nobody knows is gone in a nice little account that only you are aware of. He'd only do it for a couple hundred here, or maybe even on a big day, a thousand here, because truly he deserved a raise, but his boss refused to give it. But now they were starting to ask questions. And he knew he was on the hook for a few thousand, but truly, he really didn't know how much he'd taken. And now they were ordering some audits. And now they were talking with the vendors to make sure that the invoices matched up. And he knew it was only a matter of time, but he needed this job. This was the only job he knew how to do. His family needed this job. And again, put some water on his face, looks up in the mirror, and he sees the monster staring back at him. And he asks the monster, what am I supposed to do? And the monster doesn't answer. It's 2 a.m., she still hasn't slept. How can I sleep? all a mess. She got home that day from work, made dinner. Her son had finished up with practice, or so he said, and walked in the door. She asked him how the day went, and in talking to a teenage boy, how do they respond? Fine. Good. Two words. That's all she got. 
He went immediately up to his room to plug himself into social media and gaming central, shut the door until dinner was called. Then he came down. They sat together at the table, really with no conversation, just watching the food disappear. And immediately after dinner, he went back into his world. She asked him just before he went in, do you have any homework tonight? No, we took care of that at school. Okay. But then at 7 o'clock, the phone rang. A phone conversation that she'd had more than a couple times before. The teacher called and said, again, he's not doing his homework. He's failing five out of his seven classes. When we ask him about his assignments, he's forgotten to do them or he won't do them. He's disrespectful in the classroom. This has got to stop. He's not going to be advanced next year into the next grade. She had tried. She had tried to talk to him over and over again. She'd made promises to the teacher, to the administration over and over again and followed through on those, but he wasn't keeping up his end of the bargain. So by the time she hung up the phone with the teacher, she was angry, not just a simple upset, but in a rage. How could he do this? She worked so hard, why wouldn't he? And by the time she got to his door and burst her way in, her rage let loose. Phrase after phrase pounding upon him. Why are you so lazy? Why won't you try? What's the matter with you? Do you want to be a failure? Because you are doing a real good job of it. 20 minutes of vitriol that she couldn't control, coming out of her mouth, pounding into her son over and over and over again. She could see what she was doing, but she was so angry she couldn't stop it. Until finally... When she asked him, what are we going to do about this? He picked up his headphones, looked at her, stuck them in his ears, turned up his music so high that she could hear it from 10 feet away on the other side of the room. And by the time she'd gone to bed, the house that had been so very loud was now so very silent. And in that silence, the silence of her guilt, her frustration, her anger now with herself for having done what she had done to her son, she couldn't sleep anymore because it's hard to sleep with a monster in your bed. Now for us, we may not be as dramatic or drastic as some of these vignettes. But certainly, each of us in our own way is experiencing, has experienced, will experience the bondage of sin and the desperation that it moves us towards. Because each of these highlights that feeling of, I don't want to do it this way, but I just can't stop myself because I sin. 
And yes, we make fun that we are saints. Truly, we should. We should teach that truth and proclaim that truth, but understanding all the while that sin is still very much alive and it binds us. It binds us in ways that hold us back from being who it is that God truly calls us to be and doing the things that we know God has called us to do. Because that's what sin does. It's what it does. It tells you and I over and over again, you are not a child of God. You are a sinner. You're a drunk. You're an embezzler. You're a bad mom. And the problem is that we listen. And then we feel the guilt. And we feel the anger. And we feel the frustration We see the fractured and damaged relationships and unfortunately that will continue until something drastic changes. And how does it change? Well, as we look back at the text and the story of the prodigal, we see an interesting, interesting scene. Before we get to that scene, I want to ask the question, What was it that the father was thinking at the beginning of the story? Why would you say yes to a son who called you basically dead to him? Why would you acquiesce to such a ridiculous, foolish, and frankly insulting demand and to give him his share of the state? Well, as any parent knows, If a child really wants to do something and you say no, what happens? That child begins to resent you and does exactly what it is you don't want them to do. They just do it behind your back or sometimes they do it right in front of your face and said, basically say, what are you going to do to stop me? The father knew that to hold his son at home would just to be put a, a putting a bottle or a, a bottle cap on the pressure, and slowly that pressure would build, and it would come to a place where it would blow up in a different way, a different way that would be harder to rescue. So he says yes. Why? Because the father wants a certain kind of relationship with his son. He wants a relationship of love. Where the son says, I want to be with you. I want to be accepted by you. And I know I need you in my life. But there was no other way to get there except for the son to see the results of his actions. And when we meet the son in the pig pen, he's in that place, right? He's asking the questions. He's feeling the guilt. He's feeling the burden. He's knowing that to say what he did to his father was so very hurtful that he could never go back to his father and be restored to full sonship. Now, instead, he would simply have to ask to be a hired hand because he'd lost that privilege. It was the consequence of his actions. And so, because the son has no other place to go, he asks for help. He finally, finally, 
asks for help. He rejects his independence, doing things his own way, and saying, we need to be restored in relationship. Father, help me fix what I can't fix on my own. I bow to you. I throw myself at your feet. Will you receive me? But the interesting thing is, he's not just received and accepted back into the working household as a hired hand. We know the story. It is arms wide open that his father stands at the end of the road and says, even before the son completes his planned on, thought out, repeated in his head a thousand times sentence, he says to him, come, let's celebrate. For what was once dead is now alive. My son is home. What he has received is something that he didn't deserve or expect. He received oh so very much more. And of course we know that's grace. But here's the hard thing. And I am a reformed pastor. You know that. I don't remember reformed. It means I used to be a criminal and now I'm a reformed pastor. I mean theological background. Okay, I'm a reformed pastor. And we know... In order to get to that place, God was working. God was the one who called that son to be seeking out restoration with his father. I know that. I acknowledge that. I speak that fully and completely. But at some point, in some way, somehow, the son needed to take the responsibility to do simply one thing. Ask for help. Now, of course, God is working in that. God is the one who transforms and moves that. But it's still on the Son. It's on the Son to come to that place of desperation and say, Help, please, because I'm lost and I'm dead and I can't fix this. The reason that God allows us to sin, and I ask this question constantly, and if you missed it just before my vacation time, we had a discussion about it down in the river house. Why did God allow sin? I think God allows sin because he wants that same relationship with us of love and acceptance. And there's no other way for us to get there until we, having failed in every other means of trying to find purpose and happiness and joy and life, come to a place of saying, help me. Help me, Jesus. And by uttering those words truly with our hearts, we are saying, I can't fix this. I'm a mess. I need you. In order to get there, God is willing to allow us to pursue independence and experience its consequences. I've sometimes had people come up to me, and this is not true in all cases, please hear that, but sometimes they ask me, why is this happening? Why is this bad thing happening in my life? And there's sometimes that I just want to say, I'm surprised it hasn't happened earlier. 
Because if we make choices of independence from God, there will be consequence. Why? Because God desires us to love and accept him. And he is willing to allow anything to happen to us. Anything that takes us away, breaks our hold on our independence so that we reach out with arms open to him. He loves us so much that he is willing to allow anything to occur for us to fall in love with him through Jesus Christ. That's how much he loves you. He is willing to make a mess of you. He is willing to almost and completely destroy you so that what it is that you were going towards, which was death, moves you towards life. God wants life for his people and not death. His desire in that is not to cause us pain, but to move us to a place where there's no way out but to accept him. There's no way out except him. And that way out is offered freely and beyond what's deserved or expected because it's grace. We know the name of Jesus is Jesus. But do we know what it means? And, of course, any of you who are biblical scholars are going to say it's actually a name Yeshua. And the name Yeshua means salvation. And if we think about salvation, what is it that we're thinking about? We're thinking about help. When we say the name Jesus, what are we saying to God? Help. Help me. Because there's no other way to receive that help from God that takes us away from the monster and the bondage and the desperation of sin into life and light and wholeness and beauty except the name of Jesus. I want to share with you a song. Hopefully this all works out. We've done no rehearsal whatsoever. No planning. It'll all work. It's a song by Joel Weldon. It's called Overwhelmed. I don't have words for you. I hope the words come across well in what I share with you through this song. Begins with the words, I am nothing, yet you bid me come to you, Lord Almighty, and as I come, Overwhelmed with you, your help, your love, your grace. Yeah. 
shakes the heavens is whispering my name and as you catch my tears in your nail scarred hands I'm God wants to offer us help. And if God has offered us help in Jesus Christ, we know that he's offered that same help to others. Which means that for us, for us to learn not only to forgive ourselves and to beg God for, for, for forgiveness, but then to do that in the lives of those around us who need that same thing who need God to extend himself to them just as we extend ourselves to them with arms wide open saying, I know you can't fix yourself either. Let's both ask for help. That's what we're working through and that's what we're thinking about together. Let's pray. Father, may we be overwhelmed with your love that you have in Christ opened your arms wide to us and said to us, regardless of the far-off countries that you've lived in, regardless of the squandering of wealth that you have done, regardless of the foolishness, regardless of the brokenness, regardless of anything and everything, that there is a way, and that way is the name of Jesus. Help Jesus. Give us the life, the hope. Give us the redemption that we need. We beg of this because there's no other way for us. 
we need your grace. Continue to offer it to us so that we might grow and offer it to others freely and beyond what is expected just as what you have done for us. We pray these things in Christ. Amen.